So before we get into our passage, Psalm 1 this morning, I'd like to just reorient ourselves, remind ourselves about this psalm. Since the last few months, we have been steeped in the book of Hebrews. But if you remember not too long ago, just in this past summer, we did a summer series working through Psalm 119. So this is hopefully a little bit of a review uh, but if you're, if you're new or uh, like me who easily forgets things, here's a little bit of a review and uh, to remind us of what this beautiful book of the Psalms is. So the Psalms are ancient Hebrew poetry, ancient Hebrew poetry. They are a collection of songs, praises, uh, prayers that were sung by the Israelite people. Okay, they're, they're uh, these, these songs of, of praise and thanksgiving for what the Lord has done and in anticipation for what he's going to do for them in the future. They're prayers of, of lament, expressions of, of deep grief and anguish when, when life gets hard. There's also a few psalms of wisdom, as we would call them, of instruction that read almost more similar, similarly to the Proverbs. We'll see one of those today. And then there's many other subgenres that we find as well. But this, this book of the Psalms, the, the Psalter, as we could, could call it, it's a collection of 150 of these prayers, these songs. And they're written by, by various artists, various authors, the most common of which is David, King David, Israel's greatest king, the one in whom Yahweh entered into his everlasting covenant with the one in whom God said, this man is a man after my own heart. The Psalms have always been a favorite of the Christian community. Maybe it's one of your favorite books often turned to, and for good reason, right? We, we like to turn to these because the Psalms are inspired words by God given to us as a way of, of praying or saying God's words back to him in the midst of experiencing all of life's emotions, the whole range of, of human emotions that we experience. Jesus also showed us the use of the Psalms. He used them in his own prayers. He used them when he was debating religious leaders. He used them to teach his disciples and also in those final moments on the cross, in the height of his human suffering, the words that were on his lips came right from the Psalms. In more recent years and what I will, what I will call a, a heightened emotional awareness, an age of, of a heightened emotional awareness, many gravitate here to the, to the Psalms. Because this, this poetry, the style that they're written, just resonates in our hearts, in our souls for, for good reason. And this draws many of us here to this book. But sadly, this is where many of us stop. Is we go to the Psalms for these emotional pick-me-ups. When life gets turbulent, we go there just for, you know, one of those oh, someone else has, has the words that I need. Or a little nice saying, a, a truthful saying. And, and this is good. 
this is really good. This is how we should use the Psalms in part. But what I would argue for and what we tried to do with Psalm 119 this past summer is to show how, how the Psalms are so intricately connected with the whole of Scripture and not just to read them as isolated on their own, but, but to read them in the grand story of Scripture to see how they're connected with this meta-narrative of Scripture. So now specifically Psalm 1. Many, many theologians, commentators, our, our very own Pastor Mark a few years ago argued that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 make up this uh, this gateway into the Psalms. So we could see Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 operating as sort of the, the interpretive mechanism, the interpretive key in which we can then read the rest of the Psalms. They provide us a way to read the Psalms, not isolated, but connected with the rest of, of Scripture. So one commentator I was reading this this week noted, noted this fact about Psalm 1 and 2, that Psalm 1 tells us who the, the Psalter, the whole Psalms are intended for, namely the righteous, the person desiring to walk in the way of the Lord. And then Psalm 2 tells us who it is that the Psalter speaks of, namely King Jesus. I, I totally agree with this. I think, again, we do a disservice if we read the Psalms as disjointed from the rest of, of Scripture because the Psalms are just infused with, with deep imagery, symbolism, and, and theology concerning seeing the establishment of God's kingdom on earth through his righteous king, just like the rest of Scripture is. So as we now go to Psalm 1, this is what we want to see. This is how we want to read this Psalm. So I would encourage you, if you, you haven't already, turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Psalm 1. If you don't have a way of accessing it, it will be on the screen behind me as well. Let me read Psalm 1, verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and his, in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Church, this is the word of the Lord. This first psalm tells us of the blessed man, the one who delights in God's word and whose eternal destiny is secure because he has chosen the path of righteousness. And what I believe to be the main point of the psalmist here is to lay before us two paths. One path of righteousness that leads to a blessed eternal state and the other 
the path of the wicked that ultimately culminates and ends in destruction. And so I think the psalmist is instructing us here to follow the blessed man, the righteous man, to follow this righteous path. And so what I I hope we can see this morning is that the path of the righteous is one of a, a rooted delight in God's word and ends in a luscious, blessed, eternal state. We'll unpack this as we go throughout this psalm, but this is what I want us to see this morning. The path of the righteous is a rooted delight, a joy in God's word, and ultimately this ends in a beautiful, blessed, eternal state. This psalmist wants us to see that that those who root themselves in God's word are the ones who, who turn away from the ways of this world, the desires of the world, the wickedness of sinners. These people will be the ones who prosper, who, who experience a dynamic relationship with God. It's this person whose hope is secured when eternal judgment does come. So how I'd like to approach this psalm this morning is by looking at it in three parts. The first is to look at the two paths that the psalmist presents us, the path of the righteous and basically any other way, the path of the wicked, as he'll call it. And then I want to look at how the psalmist illustrates this. This is Hebrew poetry, so he's going to use symbolism and imagery here to illustrate these two paths, these two ways. So we want to look at why he He uses the imagery that he does. And then finally, let's look at the eternal destiny of these two paths. Eternal destiny. So the two ways. The first thing that we see that the psalmist does is he gives us the subject for which this whole psalm revolves around. The the blessed man. This idea of someone who is blessed is blessed by God, usually in in relationship to uh, future blessing, future blessing because of a relationship with God. Some some translations translate this word blessed as happy, and I'm no Hebrew expert by any means, but um, I think our our English, maybe Western minds read this uh, happiness uh, a little differently than what we're supposed to. This, this word for blessed is used all throughout the Old Testament. Specifically, we see it in, in Job 5, Job 5, 17 through 18, where we read, Blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he binds up. He, sh- he shatters, but his hands heal. I don't, I don't know about you, but I don't feel particularly happy When I'm being disciplined, kids, I'm sure you'll agree with me here. When I'm being corrected, it doesn't usually bring me to a state of happiness, as we would think. But ultimately, and parents, you can agree with me on this, is that correction, discipline, is for our ultimate happiness, our ultimate blessedness. So when we read this this phrase, how blessed is the man, we should have the future in mind. We should read it as maybe like how, how rewarding, how, how favored is this person in the long run? 
They may not always experience emotional happiness, but they will experience eternal happiness. Okay, so that, that opens, opens the psalms, and then this, this psalm, and notice what this psalmist does next. He gives us three negative characteristics. What the, what the blessed man does not do. And this is not what at least I'm expecting when I read this psalm. I'm expecting him to say, how blessed is the man who, who walks in the way of righteousness, he will live long and prosper. Something of that nature, right? But no, he, he says, blessed is the man who does not do these three things. And we need this, don't we? We need this in our secular culture in this fight against nominal Christianity, we need to hear that, that there are things that we should not tolerate. We should hear that, that there are things that we should not allow to influence us as Christians. There are things that we must avoid. So when we look at this verse closely, we see that there's, there's a progression. The blessed man does not take the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't take their advice. He doesn't stand in the path of, of sinners. This doesn't mean stand in the way of, as we, as we read it, like an obstruction or a roadblock of some sort. But it's that he's associating. He's, he's standing in the lifestyle. He's living the way of sinners. And then lastly, he then moves to a seat of scoffers. This is where the way of the wicked ultimately leads to a place of, of active engagement with wicked people that speak against God and against his truth of his word. So this is my synopsis of, of the way of the wicked. The way of the wicked is one of a progressive indulgence in the values, the beliefs, and the pleasures of this world a progressive indulgence in the way of this world. This is the advice that the wicked take. It's the way that they live their lives, and ultimately it ends up with them steeped in sin and steeped in hatred toward God. Enticed by the pleasures of this world and mocking the way of God. So we notice here in poetic language that, that these, these verbs slow down. Don't we notice this? It goes from walking to standing to sitting. This is the psalmist's poetic way of showing us the nature of sin. The nature of sin is like a snowball that grows and grows and grows. It's a little bit of sin, becomes a little bit more of sin, to a little bit more, till ultimately you are in that seat of the scoffers, scoffing at God, scoffing at his word. We must not fall into the temptation that, that just a little bit of sin is, is harmless, just one wrongful glance, one, one fudge of the numbers, one little small lie will, will not then lead into further and further sin and ultimately a further and further hardening of our heart toward God. That's what the psalmist wants us, wants us to see. 
might be a few years before we get to Hebrews chapter 12. But in verse 1, I think this is what the, the author of Hebrews has in mind for us. He says, lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles. This is what the psalmist is saying. Be careful of the apathetic attitude which leads to the snare of sin. Sin's entanglement, getting caught up in the temptations, in the desires, in the ways of this world. After these negative characteristics, this is the way of the wicked, that the blessed man does not go, now the psalmist tells us two positive characteristics of this blessed man in verse 2, where he says, but... The blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord. His first characteristic is an attitude of delight in God's word. This is what characterizes the righteous man. It's a love for God's word, for his instruction. So when we read the the word law here, it's this Hebrew word Torah, which encompasses a lot more than just laws. Maybe, Maybe you know this but it's it's the whole of God's instruction. So we shouldn't think of this as just like one traffic law, but, but a whole system, the whole way of life that God has instructed his people. Blessed is the man who delights in this way. This is someone who desires to know and to be mastered by God's word, to submit to it. It's not a reluctant adherence to checking off boxes on a Bible reading plan, but someone who joyfully and zealously approaches God's word, eagerly excited to hear what it has to say that day. Is this our attitude in approaching God's word? Do we enter our devotional time, our Bible reading time, just eagerly anticipating what it is we will read that day? The time that we get to spend with our creator? May the Lord give us this eager desire, just like this blessed man. The second characteristic in verse 2 of the way of the righteous is a soul devotion to God's word. And in his law, in Yahweh's law, he meditates day and night. He actively seeks out God's word to be at the forefront of his mind day and night. One thing you'll notice here about Psalm 1 is that there's no author listed at the beginning. There's no superscription, as we call them, like there is in Psalm 3. If you turn over, you can see it there at the beginning of of this psalm, where it gives us a little bit of context into maybe when this song or prayer was written. And so this does provide us a little bit of a challenge as we read the psalms to know how do they connect with the rest of Scripture But what I would suggest to you is that 
The more that we read God's word, the more we give ourselves to it, to study it and to let it speak into our lives and be mastered by it, the less divisions we will see in our Bible and the more we will see how it all holds together, communicating one grand story of redemption that God has given us. The more we give ourselves to it, the more we will see how it connects all to itself. So let's think as the, as the original readers, the original hearers of this psalm would have, would have heard this. Let's, let's step in their shoes for a moment. I think the author has a few key passages in mind that the Israelites would have known really well and most of them probably had memorized. The first passage that I, that I think our author is, is hearkening back to is Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6. If you know any Hebrew, it might be the, the title of this Hebrew prayer, this Israelite prayer, the Shema here, O Israel, which they declare as, as God, as, as their one singular God. So if we, if we keep reading in, in the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, listen to these words in, in Deuteronomy 6, verse 6 through 9. Moses says this, These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. When the psalmist tells us that the blessed man is the man who meditates on God's word day and night, this is what he's thinking of. Think of the comprehensive nature of this passage. When this person wakes up in the morning, when they're walking during their way, when they're going to sleep, they're supposed to teach their kids. They're supposed to write, it, write God's word on their hands, on their foreheads, on their doorposts, on their, the gates to their house. It's almost like impossible for them to not have God's word right in front of them all the time. This is what the psalmist has in mind, to meditate on God's word. Similarly, in Joshua 1 verse 8, Joshua is instructed by the Lord saying this, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do all that is written in it. This seems to be what the psalmist has in mind, the way of the righteous, the way of the blessed man is to be thinking on, dwelling on God's word day and night. Can't even walk into his house without seeing God's word written on his gate, on his doorpost. Is this what characterizes our devotion to God's word? And I'll admit it takes some creativity to have God's word always on our minds in such a busy, distracted culture. 
But I think what we learn here in these characteristics is that the more we give ourselves to the study of God's word, the more we dig into it, the more delight and joy we find in it. And ultimately, it's going to lead us into deeper and deeper depths of the scripture where we will grow in our worship and in our awe of the creator. Church, are we delighting and devoting ourselves to God's word. The next thing that the psalmist does in verses 3 and 4 is he, he illustrates this for us. He's laid out these, these paths, the way of the righteous and any other way. And so now he's, he's going to tell us a little bit more with poetic language these two paths. So I think we could ask ourselves here, why does he go to depicting the way of the righteous as as a tree planted by streams of water bearing fruit and why the wicked is as chaff which the wind drives away? Why is he using this imagery? And what I would suggest that he is doing is the psalmist is eliciting Edenic imagery and symbolism to direct our minds to eternal realities. What that, what that means is that the psalmist is, is garnering up these, these images that remind us of the Garden of Eden. The reason I think he's doing this is because he wants the reader's minds to, to think back to the perfect state of the Garden of Eden. But then he also is pointing forward to the final new creation when believers will enter a new garden of Eden. So when the psalmist says that the blessed man who delights and meditates on God's word will be like a tree planted in streams or by streams of of water, he wants us to think about the garden of Eden So think back with me to Genesis. The Garden of Eden was filled with trees, fruit-bearing trees, good trees. There were four rivers, we are told, that flowed through the garden, giving life to the vegetation. We see this later this this, uh, imagery picked up later in the Psalms, as we read earlier. We also see it picked up by the prophets, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. They're all drawing on this this kind of imagery, looking into the future at the new creation with this garden-like image. And then if we flip to the very end of our Bibles, the very last chapter, the end of John's vision and revelation, Chapter 22, verse 2, this is how John is is seeing the new creation. He says this, On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. This is the idea of, of a garden that that all of the, the biblical authors seem to be drawing our minds to this kind of future, this, this new creation that we get to, to look toward. 
So I think the psalmist, that's what he wants us to do. He wants to set our minds on, on spiritual and eternal realities as we read this, as we read the, the description, this, this imagery of the way of the righteous man. To be blessed is to be in a favorable standing of God, as we've, as we've seen, meditating on God's word day and night. And this person is the person who is going to experience this Edenic-like state for all eternity, this, this closeness of relationship with God and a trust in him and a true fellowship with him. The result there's going to be stability in life and prosperity. Now, I know some people might shudder at this idea of, of prosperity, thinking about the prosperity gospel. Maybe it conjures up these ideas of this health and wealth gospel that we've heard about, that, that God only wants you to be happy, wealthy, and, and, and healthy. I don't think that's what the psalmist is doing here. This idea of being rooted in God's word is what governs this idea of prosperity. So, it's not that we get whatever we want, but it's that as we meditate in scripture, the more our desires are being transformed and conformed into God's desires. So as we pursue living obedient lives to God's word here on earth, our minds then are set on, on eternal realities, on our eternal dwelling place. So temporal, conditional prosperity means, means nothing to us. It's not something that we value. But we will seek prosperity in relationship to our future dwelling place, not on earthly things. This is where the psalmist goes here at the end of the psalm looking into eternal destinies of the way of the righteous and the way of the, the wicked. But before we get there, in verse 4, he gives us the same type of imagery for the wicked. The beginning of verse 4 can be translated, not so the wicked. Like a, a stark contrast. The wicked will not prosper they will not be prosperous because they are the ones who scoff at the righteous, the ones who follow God's word. So they're going to be like chaff, which the wind just drives away. The righteous are, are firmly rooted, planted, secured, fruitful. But the wicked are the exact opposite. They're like chaff, untethered, withered, unfruitful. They jump on every new fad, they have no grounding in faith. And then notice there's, it's not paralleled here with verse 3 where there's a, a talk of the prosperity of the wicked. He doesn't talk about the conditional present prosperity of the wicked. Why? Because it doesn't matter. Worldly wealth, fame, the pleasures of this world are all meaningless. Ecclesiastes goes at length to argue for this. But instead, the wicked are blown away like chaff and they will not be the ones who experience this Edenic-like state 
blessed state of eternity with God. This is the same way that the New Testament authors talk about the wicked. Matthew and Luke record similar statements of John the Baptist in his preaching, where he says that the wicked will end up like the chaff, which is separated from the wheat, and will be burned by an unquenchable fire. This is what brings us then to the end of the psalm, the eternal destinies of the two ways. And the two ways will both end up in the same place. They'll both end in judgment, but then the righteous will be known and blessed by God and the wicked sent into eternal destruction. So they they will come together and then they will be separated for the rest of eternity. The eternal destinies will, will be judgment during which the righteous blessed and the wicked perish. Verse 5 is slightly confusing. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. I think what the, the psalmist is doing here is he's telling us that those who are righteous, those who have put their hope and trust in Christ, devote themselves to God's word, who have bound their lives to it, they will be the ones who are acquitted at the judgment Whereas the wicked, they will not be able to enter into the congregation of the righteous. They will not be left standing at the end of judgment. They will be driven away like like chaff because they will be judged fairly and found guilty. These are the two roads that are set before us. That scripture and the Psalms set before us. As I mentioned in my introduction, we cannot read the Psalms as disjointed with the rest of Scripture. And I hope you've already seen a little bit of how this Psalm is so intricately connected with the themes of Scripture from beginning. We were at Genesis 1, we went all the way to Revelation 22. But before we close, I want us to see one final feature, key feature of this psalm. We already saw that Deuteronomy 6, Moses gives these instructions to the Israelites to be meditating on God's word, to to bind themselves to it, to teach it to their children. And then a little later on in Deuteronomy, in, in chapter 17, God gives the instructions for Israel's king. Israel's king was supposed to be the exemplary Israelite, the one who truly obeyed and followed the instructions of Deuteronomy 6. And so when this king was to take the throne, his first assignment was that he was supposed to copy for himself the Torah, a copy of the law in the presence of the Levitical priest to make sure there were no No mistakes. And so after this command is given, in Deuteronomy 17, 19, this is what what the Lord commands for the king. That this law, it shall be with him, he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear Yahweh his God by carefully observing all the words of the law and these statutes. And we know 
from reading scripture, from our study in Kings, that rarely did this happen. Most often, the king would stray from God's word and lead the people into greater and greater sin. But there was one from the line of David who came to us in the form of a baby, who we just celebrated this last week, one who refused the counsel of the wicked, one who truly delighted in God's law and followed it perfectly to completion. As we read Psalm 1, we see that the blessed man is Jesus. The one who submitted to God's word, who became the righteousness of God, something that you and I could never attain apart from him. He is the blessed man in Psalm 1. It's in him that we delight. It's in him that we plant ourselves, and it's by him that we bear any fruit. And it's by him that we will be left standing after judgment because he will stand in our place and who by his blood we are cleansed of our sins. It's by him that those who have walked in the way of the righteous will be left standing and who can enter into the congregation of the righteous. As we read Psalm 1, the blessed man is Jesus. We cannot read Psalm 1 without seeing this. As we approach the beginning of a new year, in just a few hours, many of us will take on the task of making New Year's resolutions, right? Some of them might be really good, like, Uh, going to the gym every day or flossing our teeth every day. Others might be really Christian, like reading our Bible every day or setting aside time to pray every day. But if statistics are true in that only, I think it's 8% of people who set New Year's resolutions actually follow them to completion, if that's true, then a New Year's resolution will not be enough to lead us on the way of the righteous. We must depend on Christ for our righteousness, to keep us on the path of righteousness. Psalm 1 provides us with the way of life, not a one-year goal. So the implication is this. The first implication of this psalm is that, is that we become People who are rooted in God's word, who are rooted in and delight in God's word. So yes, our application is read our Bible, meditate on scripture, but it has to go well beyond just read our Bible. We have to follow Christ's example and become people of the word, who are characterized of the, of the word, who are saturated by God's word. So don't talk today about New Year's resolutions or just your goals for the new year. Let's think about the patterns of our life and 
how delight and devotion of God's word should characterize us as God's people individually, but also corporately as a whole church body. I know the temptation here is to fall into legalism. All the things that we need to do, reading our Bible, praying, and and all of this, and if you don't read your Bible in a year, then you're less of a Christian. This is not true. Because when we read this passage, our focus needs to be on Christ. We see that he is the blessed man who has secured righteousness for all those who believe. And without him, we are all, we are all on the path of wickedness. We are all on the path that leads to destruction. When we realize this, our desire to know him grows into a delight and a desire to read the scriptures. We begin to realize the necessity of it for our lives so that we're not swayed by every false wind of doctrine so that we can stand firm like a tree planted by water through whatever life throws at us. The second implication is this. Thinking on, dwelling on, our eternal future is a means of perseverance. Thinking about our eternal future, thinking about our eternal destiny is a means of perseverance. Why does the psalmist seem to to intentionally turn our focus to the end of the path? Why has he brought this so into focus? And I think it's for this reason of perseverance, to encourage us, those who believe. It's interesting, as you read the Psalms, the rest of the Psalms after Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, it sure does not seem like the righteous are prospering. Actually, it seems like the exact opposite. It seems like the wicked prosper and all the righteous do, all they do is suffer. We see that right in Psalm 3. I think this this furthers the point that, that we need to keep our eternal destiny at the forefront of our minds. This is the only way that we are going to persevere in this life. This is the only way that we are going to turn from the fleeting pleasures and the temptations of this world. The only way is to be rooted in the rivers of God's word and fix our eyes on our eternal destiny. Our eternal destiny, that blessed state of life, that one that leads to that luscious, eternal garden of Eden where we will be with Christ for all eternity. For those who believe. So this year I would commend the psalms to you with with this encouragement life is full of of ups and downs we have no idea what we're going to encounter in the year to come but god does and he has given us his word to root ourselves in to plant ourselves in to delight in and to find joy in and as we give ourselves to the meditation of scripture we will be like a tree It's not toppled by the wind, but that bears good fruit. 
will be like one that stands firm because our, our counsel and our nourishment, our source of life is Christ and his word to us, not the ways of this world. May we be people of the world like trees planted by the water, the waters of God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this blessed man of Psalm 1 who has secured righteousness for all those who believe. Lord, we pray that as a congregation, as a body of Christ, that we would be like a tree that is planted by streams of water, that we would bear fruit, good fruit, that brings healing to the nations. Lord, we pray for your grace to keep us on the path of righteousness. May we persevere, keeping our mind set on our eternity with you, that eternal, blessed state of fellowship with Christ. Lord, may we be word-saturated people. This year, may we give ourselves to a further delight and devotion to your word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.